So I was on the cheer team. We had a co-ed squad. I made varsity. And the only locker rooms that we had on campus were in the gym. And we had to share those locker rooms with the football players. And so I would wait until the football players finished in the evening because they would make fun of us or harass us. And I would go in the locker room after a game and change out of my uniform. And this particular night I was waiting and I went in and I was stepping out of my cheer uniform getting ready to put on my clothes and I heard the door close and lock and the lights go off. And before I knew it, it was pitch black. I was thrown into a locker and I was held down. And I think we know what happens from there. Um, But it's very difficult to talk about. It almost felt like they took a right from me. It felt like they took a part of me that I could never take back. Young Kevin didn't want to be seen in the limelight anymore. He didn't want to be known. He was embarrassed. He almost quit cheer because of it. He almost quit everything. But that lasted all of two weeks before he picked himself back up and said, listen, are you going to allow people to control your life? Or are you going to do what you want to do? And so he picked himself up and he pressed through while constantly reliving the trauma in his head for years. I kept questioning why, what makes someone do that? Surely those people who did those things to me were broken. And a lot of people might say, how can you forgive someone for doing that? And I think the only reason why I forgive is because if I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to press forward and live my life. It would have consumed my life, which is another reason why I didn't tell anyone. Because I didn't want it to consume my life. I didn't want it to be something that always had to come up. I did try once at School of the Arts to to talk about it, not verbally, but there was an assignment we were given in our composition class and I choreographed a dance that was pretty much talking about it, but no one knew. And that was kind of a little bit of healing for me, but it still didn't feel like quite enough. I'm Kevin Lee Green, and this is the Quiet As It's Kept podcast. Welcome back. I'm inviting you to join me on a journey as my dance company creates a new work exploring sexual trauma through the lens of Southern Blackness. Today, we'll be talking about mental health and why stories of sexual trauma in Southern Black communities are so often kept quiet. 
We'll be joined by mental health and trauma specialist Franchon Francis to take a deep look into how sexual trauma impacts Black communities. She'll share some of her experiences growing up and also offer some healthy advice for anyone out there struggling with their personal traumas. One of the first things we did in this process of creating this piece was we went out and interviewed people, Black people, who live in our region of the South, coastal North Carolina. And those are the stories that will be represented. I learned that a lot of people suppress the way they feel. And I also learned that it had lasting impacts on the survivors. North Carolina stories, especially Black North Carolina stories, are some of the most concealed. And so I think one of my goals and one of our goals as Tech Boger is to take our stories, amplify those, and connect them to national stages so there is a form of cultural exchange that helps people to understand our region, our people, and who we are, and maybe find what connects us and what makes us different, because there's beauty in both of those things. The beauty in having someone mirror something back to you in performance, it has more of an impact because it's visceral, it's live. It's relatable, and the imagery sticks with you. There's something beautiful about hearing these bodies move, the footsteps and the breathing. It puts the dancer in a vulnerable state because they're physically exerting their bodies and, and sharing so much of themselves, and it makes the viewer understand that they are experiencing something like no other experience and being able to sit there and watch it with other people as a group as a community is a beautiful thing because it can create a dialogue that creates even more of a support network in your community it is my hope that quiet as it's kept will allow people to speak their truth. It is my hope that it will help people gain a better understanding of people, different people who have different walks in their lives and come from different backgrounds. I hope that it creates a level of compassion and I hope that it will unify people who don't normally interact. I think for that hour of that performance, it will give people a moment to reflect if they had a personal experience or they know someone who has or they haven't. It will give people a moment to experience and it will give people a moment to engage, meaning how do they engage their community? How do they help? What are their next steps from there? 
even if it's on a small scale, that's where the work begins. Hi, this is Kevin Lee Green, and I am here with my friend, Franchon Francis, who is the founder of Healing Your Almond. Hello, Franchon. Hey, hey. Can you tell everyone, um, like, who you are and about what you do, and then you can tell us a little bit about Healing Your Almond. Oh, okay. Um, well, I, like you said, my name is Franchon Francis. I'm the founder of Healing Your Almond. Also, I am a licensed clinical mental health counselor, um, and I am a certified trauma practitioner uh, and resilience trainer, which pretty much means I'm trained in a very specific model of dealing with trauma. Um, I founded, well, I've been in the mental health field since 2007. Every time I say that, it makes me just pause and think, seriously, you've been doing it this long? But yes, I have. Um, in 2019, I launched a company that lives at the intersection of business and wellness. So I really focus on organizational health, nonprofits, for-profits. I do trainings at universities, trainings at corporate corporations, all kind of things to basically help people understand that all of us um, go through stress and anxiety and trauma in different ways, and it shows up in different ways. But the cool, the good news is, is you can heal it. And what Healing Your Almond specializes in is teaching people different interventions that they can do to heal their almonds, which is a specific part of the brain. Very nice. So, Franchon, you know that I'm creating this work called Quiet As It's Kept, which is about sexual trauma through the lens of Southern Blackness. And, you know, as I go forward with creating or as I go forward with uh, more research and the creation process, I'm finding myself wanting to find out different perspectives on things and like things I haven't thought about per se. So my first question for you is from a trauma standpoint, when it comes to sexual trauma in the black community, what are your findings? What are things that you're coming across? Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so many things, but I think the first two things that come to mind is we don't talk about it, mm -hmm. um, which is a huge, huge problem, which is one of the many reasons why I love Quiet As It's Kept. Um, but the other thing is, is that the way we need, to, and I'm, this may be a little controversial, but I know you, Kevin, so I'm assuming you're going to be okay with this. Um, the way that we need to heal as black people and the way that white people need to heal are not the same. Can you elaborate on that? I can. So, so for example, the way that your program is processing trauma is through a physical experience. Um, you're creating a safe place and you're allowing participants to express themselves through body movement. Now, there is so much brain science that supports that that is a healthy, wonderful intervention. But the, the issue is, is that I think sometimes because it's non-traditional or because it's not one therapist talking to, you know, a therapist talking to a client, um, because it's not a colonizer way, because it's not white people way. I think people don't understand how impactful it is. Now, I will say if you're a trauma specialist, the latest research shows that you can, in, you can teach someone who has been traumatized resilience. And they can utilize different interventions. Dancing and movement is one of the ones on the highest of the list. 
and it will help them to reduce their trauma symptoms. Latest research says that. When I say latest research, I mean like past five years. But the society as a whole has not caught up to that. And what Quiet As It Kept does is it brings community, it brings movement, it brings resilience, and it allows the participants to process their trauma within their own space, in their own way, without forcing it into the confines of traditional therapy. And, you know, a colonizer mentality is, is just different than what we as Black people need. And it's not the way we look at the world, typically speaking, or tribal. So the way that we do things and the way that we look at things is very different. And a lot of times what happens is when something is not okay with us, for example, if we've been sexually traumatized, the labels that a, a traditional, and when I say traditional, I mean like a clinical setting, right? And I'm a licensed therapist. So the way that a normal quote unquote licensed therapist would look at an individual that has been traumatized is actually not going to be helpful, typically speaking. So for example, they may say, well, you need to talk about it. And that may not be true. It might be true and it might not be true. But if, if you tell somebody who has been traumatized that the only way for them to heal from it is to talk about it and they come from a black family where that's the absolute thing that you don't do, then we're already at an impact. We're already at conflict. Whereas quiet as a cat says, okay, I want you to express this with your body and you may never use words and that's okay. And I want you to express it with your body with us in a group setting. And I'm going to add the healing aspect of music which is a whole different intervention. It's a full body intervention as opposed just to focusing on the cognitive. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So it's really just so healthy. I mean, it's, re- it's really what we need. That's why I love your program because it's what we as Black people need is a space. And also this space was created by you, a Black male. Like this wasn't something that you learned in a book and was like, oh, let me try to make this work or let me try to fit this to my community. It's something that you created for your community. I appreciate you bringing <laughs> bringing attention to that. It has definitely been quite a journey, um, and it is still a journey that I'm not even halfway through yet. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad that we're talking about this. One of the things that I want to ask you is. Sexual trauma as it relates to families. Okay. What are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on healing that? And yeah, let's just start there. Well, I think that, you know, the thing that you have to think about is that when it comes to childhood trauma, childhood sexual trauma, typically speaking, um, the person that is hurting you is a family member or someone you know closely. Mm -hmm. And the reason is simply because of opportunity. So to get a young person by themselves for a long period of time um, typically doesn't happen unless it's family. It's someone you live with, it's someone you may spend the night with, and maybe a babysitter. Um, sometimes it's happening in schools. So the, the problem is, is that it becomes super complex because this individual that hurt you may also be the same individual that plays with you, that buys you toys, that makes your dinner, that takes you to school, that you know, you have these positive and healthy memories with. And then it becomes super conflicted 
for the individual that experienced the trauma. For the survivor of that trauma, it's, it's confusing because it's like, on one hand, this individual hurt me and I know they did something that's not okay. Like, you know, there's a, there's a part of you that knows that absolutely that is not okay. And then at, at the same time, there's another part of you that has these positive, healthy memories with this person of things that you enjoyed and that brought you happiness and that were just good and, and a little more normal, right? So, and then you add family members into the mix that were present that may or may not have known, which is a big factor, I think a big problem, and then may or may not have contributed to your life in a healthy way. So now it becomes very confusing and it's not black and white. And I think, again, that, that outside societal pressures, they want to make people a hero or a villain. And the reality is sometimes some people are heroes and villains at the same time in the same person's story. Hmm. Wow. So hero and villain can exist in the same person. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, going back to the to the caretaker thing, right? So I, I don't want to name a particular family member because I think another thing that really frustrates me about sexual trauma is we oftentimes um, identify males as perpetrators or males as people who are predators and people who are causing harm. And typically speaking, that is true. However, um, women are sexual molesters too. Women have raped children too. Women sometimes are the predators as well. So for me, I think it's just really important to, to notice that. Um, so let's say we have a family member and not, let's not assign them a gender, but we have a family member who cares for us and cooks for us and gives us a bath and takes care of us and provides for us, but also occasionally touches us and molests us and, you know, maybe goes farther than that, maybe rapes us. And it's such conflicting information, especially for a young person, because you have to remember a young person, their brain is not fully developed, right? So zero to 25, your brain is is developing. Mm -hmm. So this whole time you're getting this information. And then at some point, you start to really understand what's happening and that it's not okay, but it's so conflicting. And that's where the hero and the villain comes in because this hero has protected you from other people, has provided for you, has um, at some at times been nurturing and caring. Um, and then the flip side of the coin is this villain has also made you feel more unsafe than you've ever felt in your life and giving you the sick feeling in your entire body that you know is wrong, but you don't have the words to kind of put to it. Hmm. So I guess my next direction that I want to go in is from a trauma standpoint, if you could elaborate on this belief that sexual trauma causes choices and sexual orientation. Okay. Is there science that supports that or any of that stuff? It's just something I'm curious about. So is there science that supports that? The answer is yes and no. There is science that says, um, and I'll use females as an example because that's just the population I know more about in this respect. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if a female um, experiences rape or being molested or some sort of sexualized trauma by a male, there is a greater chance that she will prefer to have females as sexual partners because she feels safer with females. Mm. So then the problem is, is that people then translate that into their mind that only females that have been sexually traumatized are lesbian or gay. Mm. And that is not true, is absolutely not true. There are plenty of people 
that are in same-sex relationships that have not been sexually traumatized by anyone or someone of us. So the problem is, is that statistically there's a portion of that that happens and then people take that example and turn it into a rule. And it's simply not true. And a lot of times the two things aren't related once that individual heals. But unfortunately, as you know, which is why your program is so amazing, is people never talk about sexual trauma. Gay, straight, black, white, whatever, like human beings in general really struggle to have candid conversations about sexual trauma. And as a result of that, they don't get a chance to heal. And as a result of that, they bring that baggage and that unhealthiness into their relationship, whether it be with a male or a female. Well, speaking um, generally, mm-hmm. I've heard, you know, in rural communities, the, the belief is if a young man is molested by or raped by a man, that for some reason there's this belief that they will be uh, homosexual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's these beliefs and these thoughts that I'm hoping to really delve into and to help decipher what that is, which is a big task. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to do it. I don't know if I'm able to do that with something like this. I, I don't even know if I'll get that far, but that that's something that I remember hearing quite often in rural communities. And it's always been something that has not sat right with me. So, Franchon, where did you grow up? Oh, that's such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> so, I moved every six years of my life. So, in elementary school, I was in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, in middle school, I was in Florida. And in high school, I was in Long Island, New York. And so, having traveled and move to all of those places in your youth, you know, I'm not trying to get too into your personal business, but what types of communities were those that you were living in? Oh gosh, they were so different, right? So like Ohio, super country, you know, more cows than people, no cell phone signal to this day, by the way, not a lot of diversity, both in terms of sexuality and ethnicity. Um, so, you know, that was interesting. And then Florida was, you know, largely a Latin community where I was living. What I was experiencing was a lot of gang violence. Um, and then Long Island, New York was just like alter. It was an alternate universe because I lived in Southampton, which is, I can't believe this, I'm saying this on pub, in public, but here I am. Um, I lived in Southampton. So it was like, the white people, the black people, and the native people. And for the most part, we all stayed in our own corner. Mm -hmm. And that was such a new experience for me to have such a clear, like literally everybody had their own lunch table. Like every group had separate lunch tables. And, And that was, I was like, what is going on? But there was a lot more diversity, both in terms of sexuality and ethnicity, which was lovely. Well, that sounds very much like, um, Bolivia where I grew up. It's very, I was, you know, saying in an earlier um, episode that, you know, the black people lived in this area, the white people lived in that area, and it was just understood, you know, nobody, there was no drama, just Mm -hmm. what it was. It was the way of living. So having lived in all those places, and, and you may not have been thinking about this that early in your life, 
but with every place being so different, Uh do you feel that the way sexual trauma is perceived in those areas is different? Um, yes. So I think in Ohio, which is very rural, it wasn't really something we talked about Mm -hmm. in terms of sexual trauma, but I do remember an incident happening, which I'm not going to go into that part of my trauma, where my uncles, my two uncles and my father were very, very protective and like basically made it known like this can never happen to my family. Mm-hmm. And there was just kind of this attitude of like, we're really cool to get along with, but don't mess with us when it comes to our children. And there was this understanding and there there's examples of them, you know, just making it clear to people that nothing can happen to their kids. Mm-hmm. I would say in Florida, it was almost normalized. Like I remember in middle school, a guy saying to me, what do you mean you haven't been raped? Everybody gets raped. And I was like, what? Like, it was just, it was just a crazy concept to me. And he was like, well, you know, I mean, most women, like, you know, they, somebody touched them or done something to them. And he just said it like, it was like, you know, I wear red on Tuesdays. Like it was just a normal thing. And I was, I just, I remember very much feeling unsafe, mm-hmm. not only around him, but just around a lot of people. and. For me, it was like a culture shock because I went from like Southern Ohio to, you know, an hour south of Miami in Florida. So that was very different. And then in Long Island, New York, there was a lot of awareness um, in the family that I had at that time of like paying attention to what you wear. You know, like I remember my mom being like, okay, that's too short or that's too low or that's too tight or like I suddenly was policed on what it is that I was wearing and who I was around. Um, so I had this awareness of like my body, you know, and, and part of that is also maturity, right? So in high school for me, like that's when, you know, curves started happening and all these things started happening. But even if my family never said anything to me, they would say stuff about like people on TV, like, why is she dressed like that? Why is her skirt that short? Why is her, you know, why is her shirt that low? Like, why does Leave some. I remember one of the things that a lot of my family members just say is leave something to the imagination. Why are you just like that? And they were always talking about like somebody famous just looking scandalous on TV. So the message that that translated to me was like, all right, my son, you can't wear low clothes, you can't wear short clothes, you can't wear tight clothes. So that kind of impacted how I was around people. But it wasn't like like no one said like, hey, you shouldn't do this because someone's going to rape you if you do. It was unspoken, but it was a message that I got pretty clear. So it's very interesting that you're bringing up the way you dress or how you carry yourself, because that seems to be a conversation that happens quite often in Black households about, you know, how you conduct yourself, how you go out. Do you think that like having to edit the way you want to present yourself and your, your way of expressing yourself is fair? I mean, it's absolutely not fair. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a symptom of rape culture mm-hmm. because it's this concept of me as a woman or as a man, whoever it is, whoever that survivor is that experiences that victimization, has somehow did or said something 
that just made you so powerless that you had to touch them. I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous. But a lot of us participated in it. And in Black families, we were raised that way. Like, I need to watch what I do because I'm curvy. And it's going to cause attention. So it's on me to make sure that I'm handling my body so some man doesn't feel some type of way and needs to touch me. What? That individual is responsible for him or herself. And whatever it is that they do is on them. Like, it, it doesn't make any logical sense, but it happens consistently um, with men and women, but especially women. Like, we have to police ourselves because men can't control themselves. And that is just absolute hypocrisy. Um, I mean, it goes way beyond unfair. It is, it is to me, a symptom of rape culture, is that it's somehow the woman's responsibility or the victim's responsibility to watch how they were moving or watch what they were saying or watch where they put their hand or what. I mean, it's like you can't just be a normal human and put on clothes for the sake of putting on clothes and walk out the door. So this day, I think about, I look at my schedule and I think about who I'm going to be interacting with that day. Now, I am grown. I have my own business, my own home, like grown, grown. And I look at my schedule and say, okay, Sunshine, who are you going to be around today? What can you wear? Like, what are you allowed to wear today? And I literally make sure that everything is covered, that nothing is too tight, um, that I look professional, that things match. Like, I pay attention to all these details before I leave the house. So what are some resources that the Black community can look for when seeking help or information about sexual trauma? Oh my gosh, that's a good question that I don't really have a great answer for. I know that there is listings, and maybe we can provide a link or something because I don't know all the websites off the top of my head, but I know there's like a website called Therapy for Black Girls, and it literally has all kinds of different therapists throughout the country that are of color and that feel confident, you know, serving people of color. You know, I think. But honestly, the thing, the first thing you should do is if you're struggling with this internally is find a safe person, whether they be male or female, to process this through with, because the biggest thing that any kind of trauma, especially sexual trauma, does is makes you feel alone and makes you feel like you're the only one and makes you feel like you're crazy and you're not. There's absolutely nothing wrong. If somebody touched you, raped you, molested you, I don't care what the circumstances were. There was nothing that you did or said to warrant that or to make that okay. No matter what you did or said, I don't care if you walk around naked, I, I don't care. It's not okay. So the first thing is to really find a safe person that you can kind of go through this journey with. And when I, when I say that, I mean, you know, Kevin and you and I have had, you know, very personal conversations, not about sexual trauma, but about other things that we, I'm assuming, you know, wouldn't talk to anybody else about. Just having you to know that I'm struggling with those things helps me to feel like, okay, I can breathe a little bit. Not because you're a licensed therapist or you're this amazing human being that, you know, helps people heal, which all of that is helpful, but it's because you just created, you allowed me to just be myself in that space. And I think for us, that's the most important thing. And where we think we should find it, sometimes we can't. And what I mean by that is in schools, in our own households, at the gas station, you know, in the grocery store, like these are places that we should feel safe and comfortable, but oftentimes we don't. So what we have to do is create that space because it's not unfortunately created for us, typically speaking. 
So we need to create it and look for it. And if that just means you find one person that you feel comfortable being honest with, then that's what it means. And you start there. But also I will say TikTok and Instagram has some really crazy unhealthy stuff, but also has some really like dope black therapists that really just talk about some amazing things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys, you guys are great. So I think that's another thing is like, I talk a lot of smack about social media because it gets on my nerves on like a personal level. But when it comes <laughs> to educating people, uh, especially black people, like there is a lot of, you know, healthy black social workers, for example, that are speaking out and educating people about mental health and how, you know, they want to decolonize mental health. And I'm like, yes, I am on that team. So there's a lot of different resources. You just kind of have to look, but I think that you should start with identifying one safe person in your life, even if they're physically around you or it's just Zoom or FaceTime or whatever, but one person that you feel like you can connect with because that's going to help you to heal. You hit on something that is very interesting to me and has always been a a cause for concern, and that's social media. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people lean on social media. You know, they make a Facebook post that sometimes may cry out for help. What are your thoughts on social media being a place to, to dump everything? Do you think it's healthy? Um, I think that the problem is, is it might be healthy for the individual, maybe, which not even all the time. Like, for example, some people, like I'm a venter, right? Like he's experienced me. I sometimes just need to say it. For me, Facebook is not appropriate or healthy simply because of who I am in the community and I just don't want people in my business. So uh, for me, that doesn't work for me. But I do need to vent. So when I find that person and I vent to them, that helps. And I think for some people, not me, but for other people, when they just go off on Facebook and say what they have to say or, you know, Instagram or whatever, whatever their platform is, they might sincerely feel better, which is good for them. The problem is what they're saying may also trigger and upset somebody else. So that's the issue with social media. But the flip side of that coin is you get to decide what you look at and what you follow and what you don't follow. And even if you have a social media, like all these things are up to you. So for example, I woke up on a Saturday morning and my phone was blowing up and I was like, what is going on? And I looked at this post that this woman had posted and she talked about her experience. And because I know the individuals involved and I vaguely know her, I didn't want to deal with that. And that's how my Saturday morning started. And I spent the whole weekend literally in bed because for me, it was very triggering. So I was very upset by that. But the flip side of the coin is that's what she felt like she needed. And no one said I had to read her post or respond to all those people in my inbox. Mm -hmm. Like I'm the one that made the decision to do that. None of these people forced me. It's not like they were at my house knocking on my door. They were on my phone. So I had a choice to make and I made the choice to read it. And I probably shouldn't have made that choice. That wasn't healthy for me. But was what felt good for her was to say what she needed to say on Facebook. So the issue is we have to let people express themselves. We just need to make sure that the way that you're expressing yourself, people have a choice whether they want to participate in it or not. So for example, mm-hmm. the shows that you put on, you go to, you know, travel to different places, travel to different cities. You're not forcing everybody in that city to come to your show. Right. You're saying, here is a platform. Here's something that I have available. This is what it's about. We would love for you to come. Please join us. Now, people may choose to come. People may not choose to come. But you're not forcing anybody. You're expressing yourself and creating a, a space for your participants and everybody to, to have that healing opportunity 
that they very much deserve and need that is healing for them and for the audience. If we participate by choice, then I think it's healing as well because it's an option. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the thing, but we have to take responsibility. And the thing that frustrates me about social media is that we don't want to take responsibility for engaging in social media. We want to get mad about what people posted. And I'm like, okay, but who told you you had to be on it? True. Like who told you you had to see that? You could block that person. You could keep scrolling. You could, there's all these settings where you can ask to not see certain things. Like these are decisions that you're making. So you, it's, it's a choice and you have to kind of take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. Is there any literature that you might suggest or anything like a, a book or something that has maybe helped you along the way? Um, not necessarily that has helped me, but I will say um, there's a book called The Body Keeps Score. And it is a very, very good book that teaches you about literally that, that, that your lifetime is there's a lot of traumas that happen throughout a lifetime and that your body keeps score of them, even if there's no visible scar um, or visible wound, that there are scars and wounds um, internally. And it kind of walks you through that journey and what that's about. And I started it with a client once. We didn't get to finish it, um, but she, just in the first couple chapters, it really helped her just kind of really understand because a lot of times people come to therapy and they haven't had the opportunity to heal and they're blaming themselves. There's all this guilt and shame. And the first thing I tell all of my clients is I'm like, okay, no matter what you did, no matter what the circumstances are, you did not deserve this. This is not okay. I don't care what anyone has told you. They are all wrong and they're all idiots. So the first conversation I have with them is like, this is not on you. The healing part is on you, unfortunately. But the, the wounding part is not on you. The hurting part is not on you. So just kind of really getting people to help understand that because a lot of people come to me, I have people, you know, in their 60s and 70s who have never told anybody about their trauma. And a lot of times when I, when those things happen, it is sexual trauma and it has happened in their childhood and they've never talked to anyone. And, you know, I've had a lot of black women say to me, well, this is just what happens in my family and nobody talks about it. Like I tried to talk to my mom about it and she was like, girl, don't you know we've all been raped? And I was like, oh, okay. So let's stop that, which I think is a big part of the platform that you and I are doing right now, but then also the platform that you're creating creates space to have those conversations and say, okay, yes, that maybe that did happen in the generations before me, but it's not going to continue. Wow. Last question. In my going forward with this work, is there something that you think that I might consider um, that I may not have thought of, like some something that I might could include in this journey or maybe in the community engagement that I may not have thought of? Um, Well, I think just providing resources for people to process because, you know, if what you're doing is as effective as I hope it is, people are going to feel all types of different ways participating in this program, even whether they're on stage or off. Right. Like it's a healing opportunity for everybody. But then what do you do with it? Right. So for the people that are for the audience, for those of us that are watching and not participating, I think it's really important for us to have a way to follow you and to know, you know, what you and your company are doing or local resources, you know, look research into local resources. And it is hard to find local black therapists, but there are more and more therapists of color and there are more and more trauma therapists and just kind of creating if possible, 
you know, that resource list, but also that community, because I think that that is something that sometimes you don't realize because I think you do a good job of realizing how amazing other people are, but I think sometimes you still minimize how amazing you are and how amazing what you are doing is and how impactful it is. And as a result of that, you just do this amazing stuff. And this is cotton kettle, right? Because I do the same thing. Like you just do this amazing stuff and then you're like, well, here it is. And this is what I did. And I hope it helps. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, yes. And then there's this opportunity to build a healing community around it. And sometimes we don't capitalize on that. And when I say capitalize on that, I mean, I don't mean make money from it. I mean, continue the healing because uh, people always say hurt people, hurt people, right? It's so true, but also equally as true. Heal people, heal people. And I think your program is a beautiful example of healed people, healing people. So the thing I would say that maybe we haven't thought of is how to continue that beyond just the show. Well, Franchon, um, is there any way people might be able to follow you or keep up with you in Healing Your Almond? Absolutely. Uh, the best way to really kind of see all things Healing Your Almond is uh, healingyouralmond.com, which is our main website. And then we also have social media. So we have a Healing Your Almond Instagram and we have Healing Your Almond on Facebook. So you are welcome to follow any of those things on social media and send a direct message. Um, and then there's also on my healingyouralmond.com is my email address and my phone number. Franchon, thank you so much for being here today and for having this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing and allowing me to comment. I appreciate it. Continue to go out into the world and do the beautiful things you're doing. Absolutely. As, <laughs> as we both do. <laughs> All right. Well, that pretty much sums it up for us today. Wonderful. All right. Well, have a good day. You do the same. Thank you for listening to this episode of Quiet As It's Kept. Thank you to Franchon Francis for sharing her wisdom and wealth of knowledge with us. I really have so much to think about now, and I know the peace will be so much better because of what she shared with me today. Join us in the next episode as we dig into how Technoje came to do this work as a modern dance company based in a small southern town and how that informs the making of Quiet As It's Kept. Our episodes were produced by Joey Lieberman and Nick Saberla. Quiet As It's Kept is a production of the nonprofit Arts and Education Center, Narrative Arts. You can learn more about our work at narrativearts.org. You can also learn more about Technoje and our work at technoje.org. That is T-E-C-H-M-O-J-A dot org. <laughs>